Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Quest for Wisdom podcast, where we search for nuggets of wisdom from the lives of some truly amazing people. Today's guest is Jacob Kerkova. Jacob is a Belgian-born comedian and entrepreneur who left home a decade ago in search of a better future. Jacob has recently released his first solo show, Act Normal, which is a rollercoaster of emotions, coming from light-hearted comedy and theatrics to darker and more traumatic life experiences. In his show, Jacob attacks the stigma surrounding abnormal people and pulls upon his childhood diagnosis of autism, which he wholeheartedly disagrees with. In the episode, we talk about comedy, cognitive behavioral therapy, autism, burnout, family struggles, and Jacob's challenges whilst trying to start new businesses. Jacob is an inspirational human who does everything he can to improve his life and keep moving forwards. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Jacob. Jacob Kerkova, meaning Dutch for graveyard. Um, welcome to the Quest for Wisdom podcast. You're officially the first guest. How does that make you feel? Woo! I feel so special. I have no idea what I signed up for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't explained things so well, but this will be a story of your life, where you've come from, how you've got here, how you ended up being a Belgian guy, doing comedy, running your own shows in Barcelona. Um, so yeah, as I mentioned, Jacob is a, a comedian. You've been doing that now for how long? Um, yeah, that's already a hard one because I started doing comedy here, uh, I think in 2019. I've done it once that I tried it out because I basically got into the scene because uh, my therapist told me you should do more things where you meet people. Uh, and I really like comedy and I don't speak Spanish, so my options were um therefore already limited so i started uh going to comedy shows somewhere in 2019 where i just arrived in barcelona i watched a couple of them and then eventually at some gong show um they asked me on stage as a joke or something like that um because uh, yeah gong show was like the idea that uh, you just try something and then you get gonged off um brutal it was brutal because yeah i mean i didn't have any experience doing that whatsoever so i obviously got gunged off as, uh, whenever they could um but that's like yeah that was in theory my first experience and i also had one in atomic in 2019 i think where i did an actual five minute set um in where, uh, sorry in atomic back then oh, okay. we had we had a show called uh, atomic comedy in barcelona which was at paraigua Paraguay, but mm -hmm. I, I don't know how this part is called, but we used to have them there, so that was my first time. And then in 2020, something happened. Uh, <laughs> something happened where people told you um, you have to stay in your home for the next two years or something like that. So that made it quite hard to perform uh, for many of us. So I was one of those uh, in the situation. I think Mila was also, also joined around the same time as I did. So basically, we now have to tell people we've been doing comedy for three years. But in reality, it's like, yeah, the first year we you couldn't perform at all. Or you had to do it during lunchtime in front of like three people because there was a pandemic. And then after that, I've done it for a while. Then I took a break from it and then I do it for another while. So it's like, like in theory, three years. But like in reality, I've maybe done it like two years, maybe less uh actively like last year was definitely quite active I, I can say that yeah well i mean i joined the scene about 
a year ago or something and i've seen you in loads of events so you're definitely you're definitely participating a lot that's for sure yeah. um tell me about the first time that you went on stage were you did you get a buzz from it were you shitting yourself how was it uh well the atomic one and uh, where i wrote like five minutes for was like yeah, yeah i'm gonna try this out i always wanted to do this etc and i remember that i just wrote like five minutes about me being belgian and like introducing myself and stuff like that because I, I I made some jokes about Belgium uh, that no one got because no one else was from there <laughs> in the audience, and yeah, I mean I think the set went like quite okay, but this was like you know you didn't really get laughs. I just was like introducing myself and like saying some like I'm this guy, Belgium sucks, stuff like that. <laughs> Uh, and I don't remember very well what happened um, or how I felt. I think for me it's always great when I like have done five minutes and they go well. It feels good. It also works the other way. If I do like five minutes and I bomb, then it's uh, I feel bad, <laughs> bad about it for a while. Um, so I don't know which one of the two 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 it was there. I think I was somewhere in the middle, and I don't think I had very strong feelings uh, about my first set. Uh, but it is also like uh, an older set I did back there at the time uh, when we did like shows in, what was it, La Dorotea? We did shows in La Dorotea for poetry and storytelling. And one of the first bits I did there uh, is actually the ending of my show now. Uh, <laughs> so that was interesting that they're basically, they asked us, basically, they don't ask you anything. They ask, they tell you you can do anything you want on that stage. It's a free stage. Anyone can do whatever they want. So we've seen tap dancing there, poetry there, storytelling there. And there was a show run by Hector uh, at the time. And I went up in there and I said, like, yeah, I have something to say. So I've written, like, a very long time on uh, this eight, ten-minute bit that I now use at the end of my show. And that was, like, super dark, super personal. And that was, that was, na and that was nuts because... When I did that set, two weeks after, people would come on, uh, come up to me and they would tell me, like, hey, um, I really like the set you did two weeks ago. And then I was like, whoa, okay, that was, uh, that, was that went quite well. Uh, so that, that, that's the one I remember from, from that time, from 2019, or might even be the beginning of 2020. That, that's the stuff, I, the one I remember from anything else. I think I've only been on stage two, three times, and it's, it's a long time ago. I don't remember much um more from uh, I, I was living another life then like i moved here for a company um that was sitting here in barcelona as well and i've only worked there like five months i moved here for that company and i was living a, a life where i would hang out with people from work and then my life would be primarily focused around work so i, I was back then still living a very um different life and i've met most of the people here from the scene i think when i got just fired uh from that job well that's good um so you mentioned that your therapist was suggesting that you were that you do um hobbies that involve meeting more people so can you explain how that came about uh well so if your life is primarily surrounded around the job uh, which you so only sometimes like. Uh, you know, I like my job in uh, primary aspects, but the thing is, like, you can't have your entire life being surround, uh, surrounded around it. So it's like, 
I had my job and like all the people I've ever met in my life were from my job. Um, I think it's a very logical thing and you don't need to go into 20 therapy sessions to understand that it might be a good idea to meet some people who are not from that job. Uh, especially if you lose your job that you don't lose all your friends and stuff like that. And that that's pretty much it. Like I needed to, I just moved here. I was here for a few months. I needed to meet more people and I didn't speak Spanish as I already said. So I have to meet them somewhere where they preferably speak English or Dutch. Dutch is going to be hard, so <laughs> English it is. And I think UE, um, the, uh, the UE who organizes Basement and other shows here, he was actually one of the people reaching out to me through Facebook. Like, do you want to watch one of my shows? Uh, he does very aggressive marketing. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, all of those things combined. I like comedy. I, I need to meet people. Uh, I speak English. And then I said, like, sure, I'm going to watch one of your shows. And then obviously the first time being super scared about because you have no idea where you're going to end up. Maybe they'll put you in some basement because they usually aren't in a basement or shows and uh, there, there, there's a gang rape going on or whatever. You have no idea where you're going to end up. But uh, things turned out quite well, <laughs> I would say. Well, uh, it was okay. Yeah. So do you think that you've always focused a lot on work then? Me? Absolutely, yeah. The first, like, when I graduate, like, no, I, well, I've been coding for, like, since I was 12. But that doesn't really count because that wasn't professionally. But I've always like done it like in my free time, I would say. And then when I started doing it for as a job, I didn't have anything else, right? You know, it's like I just left uh, my family uh, very early on when I was twenty-one or so. Um, that was actually when I while I was having my first job, and then it's like. I came into like some situation where I a, didn't have money, which is already not a great start. I guess most people, young people deal with that. Um, so you don't have money, you don't have, well, I did have time, but I didn't really know, like, when I look back at this now, the first job I had, basically my life was like, I have my job, then I have my household, so I have to go to the supermarket, buy my stuff, I have to iron my shirts. I did that back then, I cannot believe. I actually cleaned my apartment back then. Uh, and I was also like commuting an hour and a half twice. So like an hour and a half back of uh, three hours in total. I don't know how to explain that. So I was commuting three hours in total a day. So I like in the evenings, I didn't have time for anything. In the mornings, I had to get up very early. And then in the weekends, I was doing my laundry. I already had to like uh, take the car to like go to like a laundry mat to like do it there, cleaning my apartment feeling the, the potatoes, stuff like that. So my weeks were filled like that and I, I, I like didn't bother about anything else. And then the other hours I was just like, you know, uh, working on something else or like starting with a, a website for fun or ma making something online that is funny or something like that. And that's it. And if you're like in that mode, you don't really bother about anything else because your life runs and it went forward and that's it but yeah my life have been surrounded uh, has been surrounded uh, around work a lot like when i got my second job uh which was like only eight months after i got my first one um i i, I met this company in in silicon valley in san francisco i actually did a job interview in san francisco they asked me and i was like oh wow san francisco hmm. on a move here yay america is amazing 
hashtag American Dream. Oh, I've seen this in movies. I want to live here. And I did the interview there, and they wouldn't let me move to San Francisco like that because American visas and American racism. Uh, and then I got a job in Ghent from with the same company because they were originally Belgian and I started working there with the expectation and a dream of if I work here and I do well then they might actually one day transfer me to San Francisco because they have an office there and then they can sponsor my visa which is like one of the easiest ways let's say to get in because getting an American visa at least for long term is almost impossible so i went there in with the american dream of i am gonna i am gonna end up in america and my life is gonna be great and all my problems will be, i will forget about all my problems this is all i ever wanted i'm gonna do that and then yeah i mean if you like have this thing flying above you and this is your dream and you want to achieve that so bad you will really get sucked into it you know and to me this was like something I started there working like a regular amount of hours, but I think soon it became like twice the amount of hours I was supposed to work because one, I had this dream. Another one, uh, thing was that I was working with someone I didn't really trust and we had uh, deadlines that were impossible to reach. And they said like, yeah, don't worry too much about it, but I wanted to do my job well and I wanted to go to San Francisco. I wanted to reach that, so I still wanted to reach a deadline that was impossible to reach. Um, and there it went backward, uh, and it went very bad because I was working, I think at some points there, 16 hours a day, I would like work office hours, be the first one in, be the last one to leave, go home and then open my laptop again and continue coding. And then I didn't have, then it was like, before I had like, I, I was peeling my potatoes and I was cleaning my apartment and that was my free time. But uh, when I worked at my second job, uh, I lived in a very small apartment in Ghent that I stopped cleaning <laughs> and I stopped uh, doing anything else and stopped ironing my shirts or whatever. And then, yeah, then to took over completely, uh, completely took over my life. And that was it. And that was unsustainable. And at some point, I, well, some point, I think it was only after uh, eight, nine months again, something like that, I got fired again from that job. Um, because they felt that I was a little bit too, uh, well, how would I say it? The guy who never slept. Uh, <laughs> and that had an impact on my job, that had an impact on how I, uh, uh, how nice I was to people around me, apparently. I felt, I felt like the victim at the time because I was working so hard and I wanted to reach my dream so hard. But at the same time, I would run into the office every day without having any sleep and people would come to me and I would be like, today i i don't want to uh deal with this right now uh, yeah i think those were like very early signs of burnout or whatever but of course i didn't see it that way back then um, and yeah i mean it's a good thing that they fired me because i would have crashed otherwise because what i did was very unsustainable and very bad for my health already back then so yeah, maybe my therapist was right and you should do something else in your free time. <laughs> yeah. Conclusion. Well, I suppose the thing is that having a good work ethic is one thing, but working yourself to death is, is a different thing. And I think a lot of us, especially in your 20s, you know, you might be fresh out of university or fresh out of school and you're trying to prove yourself and you're against 
you go into companies and you see all these people who are higher than you and smarter than you and better dressed and all this stuff and then you just work ridiculous hours i was i did the same i had a job where they were paying us overtime unlimited overtime so and it was 20 euros an hour overtime which is a lot of money for spain anyway so i was just working like 14 15 hours and then i would be going out on nights out coming home at like four in the morning opening up my laptop and working for like two or three hours in the morning because I was like, it's 60 euros. And every time I thought to myself, oh, maybe it, like, I would think, oh, should I watch Netflix? I'm like, well, that's going to effectively cost me 20 euros. I may as well just work. Because it wasn't hard work. It was just like, based sort of like, well, it's like customer service. But I was like, I'm getting 20 euros for this. I may as well. But then it's not sustainable because you do burn out. And, you know, when you're, in, you're younger, you have more energy. But eventually you just go mental, basically. Um, yeah, I think that I was talking about it with my girlfriend today that this whole idea of working these 12, 14 hour days and six day weeks and those type of things is just not necessary for most jobs. And for most people, it's not it's not necessary. It's not sustainable. Most people can do their jobs in six hours a day if they needed to. And I hope we see a change, you know, like because my girlfriend was complaining to me that you don't have like you're saying, peeling the potatoes and cleaning your house. So you don't have time to clean that. If you work in 10, 12 hours a day and you're supposed to sleep eight hours a day and you might have to travel to and from work and eat and go to the toilet, then that's basically your whole day. Like you don't have time to do the most simple things. And it's kind of, it's, it's okay for a couple of years for character building maybe, but it is ridiculous overall, really. However, that brings me on to my next, well, the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is, that crazy work ethic of yours, you had a, a minor, well, I don't know if it's minor, maybe you'll tell me, but um, another sort of burnout this year, if I understand, when you were creating Allegrify. So do you want to explain a bit about the vision for Allegrify and what went wrong there? Uh, a burnout? No, this year I didn't have a burnout for once in my life. <laughs> now, I, I mean, a burnout is a uh, almost an illness and is a very serious uh it's a very serious thing, so you can't just say like I feel bad for a for a week or something and then call it a burnout because people who have a burnout sometimes suffer for months, even years, need like therapy to go through. I definitely didn't have that. Now uh, I just I, I created a business that didn't work. That's it, which is sad, but I mean it's just it happens and you gotta move on and you gotta do something else. Um, I did had had something that came into the trend of a burnout after my career at booking.com um, because there I had all the signs of burnout uh, and when I spoke with my therapist about that I mean I didn't see my therapist for like a while like I saw her during my second job for a while and then I moved to Amsterdam did, didn't like or mo moved cities first in Belgium and then I didn't see her for three four years and after my career at booking.com when I moved back to Belgium um, I looked her back up and she said like yeah these are symptoms of uh, burnout so she recognized that and there I had it but I had the advantage that uh, for me it didn't take years or it didn't take uh, very severe like a lot of people go on medication with a burnout and for many people it has like very very severe consequences and for me it had bad consequences but not to the level of other horror stories that I hear like I didn't take care well of myself as I started eating junk food a lot 
as you can probably notice to my posture that I have uh, done that a lot in my life. And there's other things that I, I didn't do, but it's, it wasn't so extreme. And I was still like trying to get myself out of it because I almost immediately started looking for a therapist. When I was feeling like that in Amsterdam, I immediately, well, not immediately, I, I neglected a bit, but I took action quite quickly to like move back to Belgium to like just get away from the whole situation. Uh, and then after a few months in Belgium, then met up with his friend and he said that he lived in Barcelona. And then I decided only like a few months later uh, to move to Barcelona. And I think, yeah, I mean, I had symptoms of burnout uh, at booking when I was working there. And I had those for a few months there. But after, like, I think it was March, April, I decided to, like, just quit my job, move back to Belgium. And I was in Belgium from April till the middle of August. And in the middle of August, I already moved to Barcelona, where I already started a new job. So it was not, like, a very long thing. Like, it was four months, but in those four months, I also moved countries twice. So for me, this went all... This was all very short. I still was a little bit handling my burnout while I was still here, while I was working at my first company here in Spain. Um, but I was able to, I mean, I was totally able to function again and to do day-to-day -day life. And so I, I never served to an extreme that most other people do, luckily. Maybe I also didn't do things as extremely as other people did. But it seems like you also, it seems like you are aware of it and seek help which I, I suppose that not everybody does that either. And if you're, not, if you're not aware of what's happening to you, it's very difficult to stop that thing from happening. Whereas when you realize, oh, I have these symptoms, these symptoms are related to this thing, this thing's happening because of this, then it's like, ah, okay, maybe I need to stop doing this, this, and this, and I should get better. Um, but Right, well... For me, that was easier because I already went to therapy during my uh, second job in Belgium. And like, yeah, I mean, my first four jobs basically happened in three years time. So it's like everything was like not far away in, in, in time from each other. Um, and I already like, yeah, I went to therapy. I already had cognitive behavior therapy there. Um, and therefore, I know like all the symptoms of depression. So I didn't know that it was a burnout, but I knew that they were depressed. And if you already know that you're depressed, that you have those symptoms, that you had those things before, and you already got yourself out of it, kind of, uh, because in Antwerp, uh, after my second job, I moved to Antwerp, I wasn't depressed. So there was like a while where I wasn't depressed, I kind of got myself out of it. So therefore, I already know all those things. So uh, it wasn't hard to me, for me to recognize it. I think the main problem was that a lot of my uh, salary back then uh, was attached to a bonus or was attached to stock and you have to stay in the company for this amount of time to get the stock so it's like I already worked for it kind of I just need to stay like two three months and then I get my stock or my bonus that I kind of already worked for two-thirds or whatever uh, my mind was working like that so that's like one of the things that really like pushed me through but I n knew I had the problems and I knew I was not gonna fix them but i was like i'm just gonna push forward until i have these things um and that's like kind of how it kind of sucked me into uh the depth uh is that a saying yeah that, yeah that, that sucked me down and basically 
I knew it for like a while and I didn't really want to take action and then eventually I did get my bonuses, I did get some part of my stock and then I was like, yeah, okay, now I have money, and with that money I can uh, move again, I can go to Belgium, crash it without having a salary, I also started a project back then, also called Electrify, <laughs> ironically enough, and that that's it, yeah, that's, that's how I know, uh, that's how I knew and that's how I could take action because I already had it in my mind, I already know the symptoms, I already had recognized it myself, I just had to uh, take the step to uh, actually fix it. So for you, what were the symptoms that were making it clear to you that that's what you were, that you were struggling with? Depression. Um, well, for starters, I hated my job at the end that I worked uh, at Booking.com, but the worst part is that uh, you know, I shouldn't say the name of the company, but also like I'm not solely blaming the company because they were doing a lot of good things for their employees as well. And I think especially in the beginning that I worked there, I really enjoyed working there. So I'm not going to like trash them entirely through, through the mud here. Um, but I hated my job and I couldn't really explain well, well why. There, was, there didn't really seem to be a reason. It's just like I hated going to work. And since my life was still surrounded primarily around work, I mean, I moved to another country for work. All the people I knew were co-workers from work. And every activity I ever did after work was with people from work. So it's like, uh, if my job didn't go well, nothing went well. And yeah, so I hated my job. So that's the first symptom, because if I hated my job, I hated everything. And I also didn't really like Amsterdam. I noticed that as well was always complaining about everything that went bad in Amsterdam. Although I still feel like I have some points there. There are some things that are wrong with that city. Like what? I don't know. It's like so busy all the time. <laughs> Compared to Barcelona. Oh man, you have no idea. Uh, but I, I worked in the city center of Amsterdam. Uh, on Rembrandt Lane. Which is like really like, it's like plus the Catalonia of, of Barcelona. Like uh, a little less pigeons and, and a bit more people. But it's like, if you like go out for lunch uh, out of the building, let's say they had a restaurant there, but if you would go out of the building, you would like just not be able to exit the building because there would be like 400 tourists like passing by. And then like the whole street would be like just trash food for tourists. You know, all this like Dunkin' Donuts, McDonald's, KFC, all in a row. And that to me really felt like I was like living in a theme park rather than in an actual city. Um... So that, that those were like the things I didn't like about Amsterdam. Like I, I love junk food, but to me it was more like um, I live here. I want to have a large supermarket and I want to have a pharmacy, and I, <laughs> I can't find those anywhere here. Uh, so so that I mean like I, I guess looking back at what it might have been a lot of things I would like about Amsterdam, which would be like multicultural uh, environment and like always had meeting people from anywhere. And they, apparently they have a comedy scene as well, which I never noticed while I was there. Um, but back then I was like, uh, no, I hate the city and I hate everyone. And I actually back then didn't like the fact of living in a multicultural city. Do you think, though, that like, do you think that if you were there and you were in a better frame of mind overall, you'd have had a different experience? No, oh, absolutely. I mean, it's like, a part of it would be like things that I would still have problems with today, especially like the access to pharmacies and like 
everything's being overpopulated and not having a large supermarket. These are things would I would still be irritated by. But everything else, I think it's okay. I would be able to live there now, I think. Um, I was there a few weeks ago to do comedy there, met some people. So, and then that's a bit heartbreaking, like I can't do it now, but I couldn't do it back then when I was actually living here. Um, because, yeah, I mean, Amsterdam was like the first place I moved to. Uh, this was really like an opportunity for me to get my life together. I get gotten, was given pretty much any opportunity you can think of. Like the company sponsored my relocation. I got an apartment there. They made sure I did. I had a group of friends there, uh, which also wasn't always the case in my life. And you had stability. Yeah, I had like a contract there with a the company and they basically almost couldn't fire you. Uh, I had everything set up, you know, and my life was in order, let's say. And it's it's a bit sad looking back at it now that it, that, that it had to end like that. Because this could have been my life, and if I stayed there, I would have been in a financially in a way better position right now <laughs> than I am today. But, yeah, things happen for a reason, they always say, right? Yeah. <laughs> you have to believe that. Um, so you mentioned before that you were doing uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. So what were what was the uh, the goals of that? Well, it's uh, the whole uh, idea of people always telling you it's all about perspective, bro. Uh, let's say the whole concept of cognitive behavior therapy is all surrounded about that. It's basically like things aren't bad, but you think things are bad. Um, for example, um, now I need to think of an example. Let's say um, these are real, real like situations you're in with with other people, like or in at least in my case that that was it. It's like let's say someone here in Barcelona says I don't want to have you on my open mic or whatever, and the f the first uh, thing you're gonna think is like they don't like me because mm -hmm. they don't want to have. And then if people don't like me, uh, you're gonna feel sad because people don't like the thoughts of. Um, or don't feel well when they're not being liked in general. And that's like the whole thing. It's like you feel sad. And the misconception that people make is like, I feel sad because that happened. No, the idea is that you feel sad because you thought someone didn't like you because of what, how you saw what happened. And with cognitive behavior therapy, what they're basically doing is like, okay, so uh, let's play it like a movie. Let's go to the whole scene again. Um, what did they exactly say? You can't be on my on my own mic or whatever. Uh, what is another way? What is another thing you could think in that situation? Like, why uh, aren't you let on on the mic? Like, maybe it was full. Maybe you were already on last week. Maybe they think you're too good for the mic. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's ever gonna be the case. But could also be a situation. So these are like alternative thoughts of like why this happened. So then you're like challenging your first thought, and if those alternative realities, those alternative thoughts that you're creating, uh, some of them might be way more positive uh, than the first one. For example, let's say the lineup was full. doesn't mean that the person, in fact, didn't like me. That just means that the person does like me, but cannot do it. And then I feel less sad. And that's like the whole, whole idea of cognitive behavior therapy is like just challenging your own thoughts so that you don't feel sad and miserable all the time yeah i think it's so powerful and i suppose 
maybe this isn't part of cognitive behavioral therapy this is probably something else but to take that one step further the fourth option could be maybe they just don't like you and that's also okay because not everybody has to like you or and i suppose that being able to be comfortable with that is also even more powerful in itself because it's like if someone doesn't like you they they could be someone might not like you because they could be jealous of you they could be threatened um you could have annoyed them you could have pissed them off or something but i just think that it's what you're explaining there is it's so powerful because it's so easy to jump to conclusions and if you're not in a good overall frame of mind then you do just jump to conclusions and it's something that i struggle with for a long time is fear of rejection so that a situation like you would be saying that would be the exact thought i would have that person doesn't like me they hate me and then i'd be devastated about it and i just would never ask again and it's so when you actually think about it and get that extra perspective you realize you're like why am i thinking the worst case scenario every single time but everyone does that because in fact if like the scenario i gave uh well i first of all like all the things you said like maybe the person doesn't like me and that's okay that's not a part of behavior no no that's <laughs> oh, definitely that, not cognitive that, behavioral therapy that, that part anymore but um it, it everybody will think that way because they are in matter of fact rejecting you and no one on earth likes to be rejected so the immediate thought that most people will have in that situation will be like they don't like me it's just like it's the stronger people in our society that will understand and will do further than that. Uh, and yeah, it's really takes like a, an, an inner strength to like just not react on your immediate instinct because mm. we, we're not living in, in um, prehistoric times where we just hit each other in the face for, for, for whatever. No, we live in a society now and like a part of growing up and being an adult or whatever, just trying to be part of a society is just like not letting that immediately uh, affect your your behavior um, and that that's what they teach you in cognitive behavior therapy and actually I, I would almost recommend it to everyone because this is really teaching people like you can't always immediately act towards the way you feel like sometimes it's fine to feel sad mm. sometimes it's fine to feel angry I mean, I can feel angry, but that doesn't mean that I need to take a gun and shoot in a high school. You know, it's, um, sorry, <laughs> that's, that's all. Yeah, but that, that, that's, the whole, that's the whole thing. It's like, uh, as long as people like understand that there's like a difference between like their, their thoughts and their feelings and the reality and that they sometimes need to like take a step back and uh, think those things through. Then we would live in a way safer world than we do today, I guess. Yeah, I think for me, it was only about a year or two that I realized that what you think in your head isn't a direct representation of what you actually think. Like the thoughts that are going on in your head are quite often just thoughts that are going on to cause some sort of reaction inside of you. You know, like when you get intrusive thoughts saying, let's jump in front of a car or let's push this or let's do that and all these weird things. It's, it's just your brain saying random stuff to get some sort of reaction out of you. And then I, when, once I realized that, I was like, why, have I not, why is it taking me 26 years to realize that you, you don't 
the thoughts that are going on in your head. It's like two different people, you know, and it's really bizarre. And the more I think about it, it, like humans are just so bizarre. And that's why one of the main reasons I'm doing the podcast and all these different things, interacting with people, because we are so weird. The things that we do and the fact that we've got these voices going on in our head that say random things that just put us down for no reason. Um, it's just, it's, it's extremely odd. Do you have the, do you say in, in Dutch about thick and thin, thick and thin skinned people? Thin skinned people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We say uh, long and thin. We say long toed. Oh, long toed. Cause we have in English, if someone's, um, if someone's thick skinned, it means that they would be the type of person who doesn't react. They don't care that much well, if, but, if yeah, they get rejected. That, that, that's the opposite of long toes. <laughs> when you say long and thin, that means that they're thin-skinned and that they react on everything. Um, so, yeah, thick, thick skin. yeah, I know what it means. It's super interesting. I, I read a thing before that thin skin and thick skin, if you have thin and thick skin, um, the thinner your skin, the more reactive your nervous system is. And the more reactive your nervous system is, the more you are going to automatically react to situations um which is super interesting because you in england you know you paint the, the paint the idea of someone who's thick-skinned being a big tough kind of burly man who just doesn't care about anything but it's kind of true uh, and then the thinner-skinned people and also the the thin-skinned people are more likely to have sweatier palms but i just thought it's so interesting that all of these reactions are coming from our nervous system and some people are just more reactive than others, and some people will struggle much more than other people. Like, for example, not everybody... Some people would naturally not jump to terrible conclusions um, when when rejected from something. You know, they, they might not enjoy being rejected, but they wouldn't jump to terrible conclusions. But then some people do just naturally jump to that, and it's this big spectrum of people just on there, and it's... I don't know, I just find it so fascinating. Right, but I think that's like a combination of a lot of different things. In one way, it's your level of, let's say, testosterone. Mm. If, you, if you as a man have more testosterone, you will do more impulsive things and get more aggressive and things like that. But that's like the biological part. And there's also like the environment you're in, situation you're in, the situations you have been in, um, the, the baggage that you're carrying around traumas that you're dealing with i think all of that really plays into how you as a human being react in certain situations and maybe person a might be way more calm in one situation and person b might be super thin-skinned let's say and like we start uh flying around and, and screaming like crazy but in some cases it's like if you know the background of person b you might understand why um they react uh, differently than the first one so it's not only like the biological it's really like based on a lot of different uh set set of of things that causes you to behave in a certain in a certain way uh and if you know all the information it makes sense but the thing is as as an outsider uh, and even sometimes the person uh, himself you never never know all the uh variables that come into play no i mean i think it takes a lifetime to get to know yourself and then you die <laughs> you get to like 19 you're like oh i think i really understand myself fully and then you just die um so that's cheerful but <laughs> yes let's talk about death 
no, no. In in all seriousness, how old do you want to live to? I don't know, like thirty. No, uh, <laughs> I that man. I don't know. The thing is that I also don't care anymore. I think like I will probably be dead before I ever get my pension, <laughs> just by my lifestyle and the way I live. Um, but to me, it's I honestly don't want to get older. Um, because I feel, I, I don't know what's coming next. You know, I'm turning 30 in two months from now. And then it's like, there's like this whole set of expectations that people have about you and that you set put on yourself as well, about how you should be by the time you're 30. I already had those when I was uh, turning 25. And I, I, I guess at 30, you're expected to be an adult. Uh, I don't fully want to be an adult. And I am noticing like all those weird, weird ways and like things I w used to be able to do uh, when I was 20 and that I'm no, no longer able to do because uh, when I was 20, I was, used to be able to drink energy drink every day and I didn't have to go to the toilet every three minutes. <laughs> now that is the case, so I'm already noticing that my, uh, my body is turning older. I don't like it. I don't really know what's coming and I am a bit scared of that because like for real, I don't know. I'm in a country where I don't speak the language. Um, I don't have contact with my family anymore. So I like live here in a country that I don't understand. I'm like going from job after that, after job, like just trying to make money and survive. And I don't really have a goal anymore. So to me, it's like, I don't know what's next. I'll see and I'll, and I'll anticipate to it. Uh, I gave up on the setting very high expectations from here so you are fearful of the future fearful in in a way yes but it's also like i, I, I stopped caring that much <laughs> but what what do you think have been the best moments of the past decade well it's like the past decade to me... No, the best moments of this past decade, so like your 20s, for example. Yeah, well, in my 20s, that's a bit a thing. If I look at the first five years of my 20s, compared to the last five years, the last five years, nearly anything changed or nearly anything happened. And in the first five years, pretty much everything happened. Everything that happened in my life happened in my first five, five years of my 20s. I run away from home. I had jobs that I got fired from. I had a burnout. I moved the uh, first time away from my own country to another country. I moved to Barcelona while I was just after. Um, I've done so many things. Like in the, uh, back then, my life changed consistently, consistently, like all the time because I moved every six months, stuff like that. I know I'm like in a stage. Since my 26, I live in the same apartment, mainly because of COVID. But uh, I have been doing like some jobs remote. Some of them I've done over a year now. Uh, I've been inside this com comedy community now for nearly three years. I mean, things still change, but it's, some of the people are still the same people. Um, it's like, I don't know. It's like I'm settling down. <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's like I, I just... Back then in my early 20s, I had so much dreams of like moving to the US and like doing this and that and becoming a billionaire with a startup and whatever. And I was such like, I don't care anymore. Um, and I just take it as it comes, I guess.
Isn't that like a carpet yam or how they say it? Yeah, carpet yam sees the day. Um, so I want to touch back on Allegrify, um, because if you could just explain a bit about what your vision for Allegrify was, um, and then I suppose what you did to get it going and what went wrong along the way, and then any advice to future entrepreneurs, because you're clearly very entrepreneurial. You seem to be launching projects uh, all the time. And... I'm entrepreneurial, but I'm definitely, I don't have the skill set to be an entrepreneur, and I feel like that's hitting me in the face all the time, because to be an entrepreneur, one of the things you need to be good at is uh, making connections and selling your product, and those are like things where I'm not that great at. Uh, but I was know, someone who is. Yeah, well, best the best entrepreneurs are teams. Well, teams are two, I'd say. Yeah. Because you're clearly like a you're a workhorse, and you've got the skill to actually code the stuff. Just pair up with someone who's great at selling and wandering around and talking to people and stuff. Then yeah, then you can smash it. Well, that's another thing. Then you have uh, to work together and like rely and trust on other people, which also can um, be challenging at times. Um, but yeah, I like for you. Do you want to hear the story about the first one or the second one? Because there were oh. already two. Um, the first one I started like after after cooking, right? Because then I had like my burnout kind of things, and then I was working on Electrify, which was supposed to be uh, a mental health app because I <laughs> I was an expert at that point. Um, Just for people listening, like Allegrify is based on Alegria, which is Spanish for happiness. Yes, yes. Uh, well, so like Allegrify. Yeah, Allegrify. Um, Allegri Allegria means like joy, uh, I guess. And it's also like, it's the same in like most languages, like Portuguese, Spanish, and uh, Italian. A whole, yeah, Italian, a whole few others. Um, yeah, that being said, back then the name made actually more sense because that was like a mental health app, so to give you joy, whatever. And I took like the whole uh, concept of uh, cognitive behavior therapy, which we, we somehow already spoke about. And basically I made an app for that and then I had like a whole thing for therapists so they could follow up with their patients and they could like give in their thoughts into into the app. And I built the whole thing because that's what I do. And then I started uh, getting it in, in the hands of some, and of, of few people. I think with few I mean like 10. And I had this whole thing for therapists but the thing is I didn't know much therapists and I've only reached out at the end in like two or three or something like that. And then I went to my previous uh, college, the college I graduated from years ago and I actually gave the presentation in front of them because they also like have uh, courses to like do business and start start your own uh, business. They, they really uh, put a lot of students. Uh, put effort in trying to get a lot of students to start their own business when they're there. So I went to like uh, the lectures of like these classes uh, and I did a presentation and I got like a lot of harsh feedback there because I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> uh, like harsh feedback uh, in, in, you know, about what specifically? Well, the thing is like if you start a business, you got to make money, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I've, I've been told that that's an interesting idea. And I had an app which was uh, 10 people were, uh, I got 10 people to use something like that. And I had a, um, a system for doctors, which they weren't really waiting for. And therapists in Belgium weren't paid that much. So they don't really, I, I don't believe that they would be willing to pay for it. 
users would also not be willing to pay for it because it was a very tiny app and users expectations on mental health apps because that was in a time where like reflecty was coming up and um what is this thing better help was also coming up and um, which we like provide services for online therapy had like millions in zats have uh, 10 times the amount of services that i'm providing and even they have difficulties getting people to pay for their services so i couldn't do it on the user side then i told like maybe i can go to corporations and so they can give that but then there's like the whole problem that uh people who work at the corporation or employees from the corporation don't really trust the corp company themselves with the data because they're going to give like mental health details they don't want to share that with them and i feel like i i i really wanted to, to build that because i was like having mental health issues myself but it didn't really seem very viable to turn it into a business for for those reasons there didn't seem to be money or at least definitely not a lot of money anywhere and software running a software project costs a lot of money so it's like uh, i just gave up at that point i gave up very early because i didn't find money um so that was that so i left it there then i went to spain started working at spain then didn't so i'm sorry to cut you off what what was your because you mentioned that you you were going to be charging the users so what what was your original business plan for getting money how was it gonna what was it be commission taken off each well, that, session or that, that's the thing like i was an engineer being depressed building something i didn't have a business plan and that was the main problem like i thought maybe i can charge users like a monthly subscription but i from what i learned is that no one would be interested in that like i actually asked well i asked my ex-college professors there i also asked a few other people and that's like the, the information i got so i didn't explore that further and doctors or therapists also wouldn't pay a fee for that because they don't have the money and also not really the interest most therapists are not that into tech uh and that's it i didn't have a business plan that's why i i never started that as a business i just did that as a like a website and an app that i created but it never was a business so i never officially started it um because there was no business plan so no business right so in a way you were kind of trying to in a very long complicated way you were trying to solve your problems by creating a really um powerful app mm. yeah well i i thought like maybe it helps people i know cognitive behavior therapy works because it works on me and it works on a lot of other people and i thought like if this is like a thing that so many people use uh and it helps them maybe i can build an app that that, that will help them as well and that would be the best app ever an app that makes people happier imagine um did you when when you did your cognitive behavioral therapy um did you then feel did you then feel compelled to be telling people about it um I never feel really compelled about to tell people about anything I do because I never think it's ready. Like, uh, me as an engineer, I am very easily able to use anything because I am very tech savvy. But if I give it into the hands of users, I feel that they need a lot more UX wise. Uh, no, what I mean is, is with the actual, when you did the actual cognitive behavioral therapy and you came out of it and you learned these new skills, did you feel compelled to then be spreading that information to people 
there, I thought it was interesting. Like, I learned it the hard way. And I believe that if the original plan was, like, if I can get this into, like, an app that anyone can download and we can spread it more than to only to the few people that actually recognize that they need it. Uh, so, yeah, I, 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 I love the concept of it. I, I, I learned a lot from having that experience. Yeah, because I am... Um... I, from my personal experience, when, and again, part of the, well, a big part of the reason for this, I don't think I explained to you what the Quest Wisdom started, but it started as a blog that I started writing. I, I used to have a problem with alcohol and drugs and all this, and then I stopped doing that, and I started writing about the process of stopping being an addict, basically. And that was what it, that was what it started at. But when I posted the first article, I got loads of people messaging me because everybody knew me as that guy who was always wasted. And then I felt compelled, even though it was, I was majorly uncomfortable and writing the whole thing, even though it was cathartic writing it all, it was also majorly uncomfortable because I was writing as personal as I possibly could be. But then now I, I spend a huge amount of my energy, most of my energy, trying to learn and be a better person, be a better person all the time, better, 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 better. And I feel compelled to tell people because I feel like it's such good news and good information. And the concepts are not that complicated, really. And sometimes you just have these little penny drops and you're like, oh, wait a minute. My thoughts don't, my thoughts aren't real necessarily, or I don't have to catastrophize everything. And these little penny drop moments that come and when you have those moments, they're kind of amazing. And I feel like it has to be spread. And I think that that's quite common in what I see from people who have experienced tough things. They then feel compelled to tell other people. And it seems that you did that in quite a big way, in the way you know how, which is creating some complicated app that most people can't do. Um, so yeah, I think that's it's pretty cool. Um, so wait, you use uh, CBT to fix uh, alcoholism or how did it work? No, I just, I went to, um, I just decided to stop drinking and then I went to uh, like an addiction specialist and then I was on a few different medications for a few years and then I was like, I came off the alcohol and then I was in and out taking drugs for like two or three years and then over COVID I started taking loads of drugs, totally lost the plot um, and then I had to stop all of that, came off the medication and then I spent, I spent like, 18 months or yeah about 18 months with the worst depression like i i can't imagine it being worse because i'd been zapping my serotonin so much with all the drugs when i stopped it was literally like there was no shred of happiness whatsoever in my entire existence like when i looked at the past there was everything was so negative and dark and evil all my relationships i was looking at everybody like so paranoid suspicious dark evil all my thoughts horrible couldn't laugh everything for like a year and a half and then that stopped well i just got a little bit better and better and then here i am now and then but i started i had to take a break from doing the quest for wisdom stuff for a couple of years because i was getting people messaging me all the time but i was in a terrible place and all these people are messaging me like oh connor i need help People I don't know asking me, should they be taking this medication? Should they be seeing a therapist? Like, 
Um, the answer is yes. yes. Go see a licensed therapist in that case. But kind of the fight that like the the worst part of it ended when I was actually I joined this charity that a friend from my uh, friend from home started, which is called Mad Millennials, and it's basically peer to peer support. So peer to, so a lot of the a lot of the mentors that do it are actual therapists or have done some sort of training in that but the idea is that it's people of a similar age and you know talking to each other and just an opportunity for free for people to just talk and and it didn't it hasn't kicked off yet because their business business model it's a charity but their business model wasn't quite right um but i joined up with that and we did a mental health first aid course and as i was doing the mental health first aid course from day one to day two this person I'd met in Brazil messaged me like, oh, I'm really depressed, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'd broken up with my boyfriend and it was like, it was a guy and he was like, I've broken up with my boyfriend and I, I'm so depressed. And I just did, I didn't know what to say to him. And then I responded just like, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. And then I think I said to him, you know, have you tried meditation or something like that? Which is just, I realized afterwards, not the right thing, but it was, he was calling me from Brazil and it was like, four or five in the morning or something not calling texting and then the next day i had a funny feeling and i messaged um and he killed himself and i was like i'm not qualified i never felt qualified to be talking to these people but then i just took a break away from it um why is it that you feel responsible for what okay i have a lot of questions here uh like you started a blog and people started emailing you on this blog or how how did this yeah. start email or instagram or whatever did you feel responsible to help those people at the time massively yeah i couldn't say like now i would be able to separate myself and at the beginning um i felt responsible but i felt capable but then as i got more ill i suppose i felt less capable and when my when all of my thoughts and my existence was just dark and evil i felt evil and i didn't want to be interacting with vulnerable people whatsoever you know like if someone reached out to me now and were asking for help i could sit there and i could listen and talk to them for hours or whatever and, and hopefully give them what they needed but at the time it i just i had to take a break from that and to me it seemed a bit of a dangerous game to get involved in because if people come to me and they ask me my life is bad uh, horrible stuff is good especially like a person I don't know imagine if I would get like an email like one of the ones you get I would almost immediately reply and say like uh, I am not a licensed professional please go talk to someone uh, either someone you know in your family please uh, try to get a, a licensed doctor try to talk with your house doctor, talk with a licensed therapist of that. I think that has been pretty much my default answer because there's two things uh, there. There's one, you are not a licensed doctor, so you cannot give the advice that one of them could give. Secondly, you are putting yourself in a very vulnerable spot because people will push more of their problems on you and you didn't have an, adv have had an advanced training on how to deal with that. So I feel like you put yourself in a very dangerous position of uh, trying to help them. I would personally never do that. One, because I'm an asshole. But two, 
uh, it, it, it is. It, I mean, like, it's the same reason that, let's say, um, you wouldn't let someone, you wouldn't let, let a, a therapist, let's say, do my job and work on a website with 5 million people using it and that has an outage and ask them to fix it. You wouldn't do that. Same thing as, like, I, I shouldn't be a therapist and uh, help people in that way. Um, I, it's a bit, I don't understand why they reach out to you uh, and not to the doctors. I hope that there are doctors available from the place they speak, honestly. Well, just, just to clarify, I did always, I, cause I started writing, um, a few articles about this medication I was taking and it was quite a new medication. So then loads of Google searches were coming towards me. Um, mm. and then I was getting people like, do you think I should take this? And I'd be like, I, I cannot tell you that whatsoever. I don't know you, um, blah, blah, blah. But then there are some people who would just strike up a conversation on Instagram or Facebook and it would just be, it would never be me telling them advice. Um, it would, I tried to just listen because my thought process was if they're reaching out to me, it's because they can't or won't reach out to anyone else. You know, like not everyone has family they can reach out to. Not everyone wants to reach out to their family. Not everyone knows you can reach out to a doctor. People have had, some people have had terrible experience with doctors. Some people have to pay for doctors. Right. Um, but that's why I, that's why I stopped doing those things. Um, but now if I started again, because I'm part of this charity, the Mad Millennials, the idea was that I could write the articles and then push people towards this Mad Millennials where there are people in there who are therapists, um, and they could go into, you know, group sessions for free, right? Remotely. And I've been in, I guess, one of those. I mean, back in the day when I was an um, edgy teenager, I used to be in one of those uh, chat groups or forums where you would like talk about your uh, problems with, like, uh, you know, school problems or whatever. And you would have forums, and I posted like personal things in there, and there were also uh, people helping me there. Um, but I feel like the th things that you're mentioning now, uh, especially if it comes to like uh, substance abuse and very heavy topics like depression and suicide and things like that. Um, one, like this is not your responsibility of dealing with them. Yes, it's your website and yes, they're reaching out to you. But I mean, it's not like because someone comes to me on the street tomorrow and says like, I'm going to kill myself that it's my responsibility to help them or that I can, however, fix them. Of course, I'm going to say like, don't, but I mean, I feel like you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself trying to help those people. And I think the best thing you can do is one, keep yourself healthy at all points and put your own health before that of others. I think everyone should always do that. Make sure you're healthy yourself. And the second thing is, like, like I said before, there are specialists who are trained to dealing with this kind of thing because these are very difficult topics. You can, yes, listen to them, but um, that's it. If you listen to them and they ask you, uh, what should I do, whatever, I don't know. Like, if someone comes to me and they say, like, hey, I want to kill myself, and um, uh, I, I had a divorce yesterday and my children don't want to see me anymore. And I have, uh, um, I'm drinking too much. Well, what, what, well they're probably never going to say it like that. But, um, whatever, like, I wouldn't know what to answer. Um, 
don't know. I feel like um, I don't know. I I wouldn't like to be in your place. That's basically what I want to say. Well, yeah, that's that's the thing. But it it was funny when you were mentioning about creating that app to link the therapist because one of my ideas for the website, I had lots of different. I had I had a bit of a burnout because I had I was like you were doing. I was using work to kind of avoid my problems. I was taking loads of drugs and I was working loads coming up with all these ideas but the ideas were just like piling on top of each other and there's just more and more and more and more and more ideas coming and it was just became so overwhelming and I wasn't sleeping properly or like wasn't sleeping for days sometimes and then I was just reaching out to people and just being bizarre and odd and freaking people out um and it was I just had to step out of it but then one thing you mentioned was about I can't remember the words you used, but sorting yourself out, basically, uh, putting your own health first. And it was actually, I did this experiment before where I was writing letters to random people and people I used to know and, and people in different countries and just like old school letters. And one person wrote back to me and he obviously, it was someone that I just knew from school. We were sort of friends, but not like, hadn't seen each other since we were like 15 or something. Um, and he said, when you're in an airplane, they tell you, if we go down, parents need to put their oxygen masks on before the children because otherwise they're going to be useless and he said that to me he's like put your oxygen mask on before you put other people's oxygen mask on and that stuck in my head and i was like that is so right because if you're not in a fit place if you're not pretty comfortable with yourself and pretty just calm overall it's going to be very difficult for you to be giving anybody any sort of comfort or help and so I, I took a step back from that. Um, but, um, yeah, what about your... And then going back on to the, the second Allegra pie. Uh, yeah. Well, still topics. No, but there's first, like, there's another example in a very uh, darker time of my life that actually exactly explains the same of your oxygen mask. And I believe that this was the discussion that I had with my therapist about me leaving home. And I remember her saying, like, oh, no, or I was telling her that people will call me an asshole for leaving home um, because I left pretty much my family behind with their bullshit um, <laughs> or, or the, the misery that they were in or the misery they created themselves. But that's not the point. And basically, I was telling her that every day when I was driving back home, I was wondering whether I would drive home or if I would drive in the river. And... Then she asked me basically, like, would you have helped them then if you would have driven into a river? And I think that's pretty much the same as with the oxygen mask is like, if I would have stayed there trying to help them because they had problems, uh, that would have had such a disastrous impact on my personal mental health that I might have driven into a river and that I wouldn't be able to help anyone. So I think that really resembles like the thing you just said. It's like something I noticed in my, in my life as well. It's like sometimes it's not an asshole thing to do to like just take care of yourself and just let people be. Uh, you can't solve everybody else's problems. Um, okay, but the other electrifier, right? But, but before we move on, I think that one thing I learned as well was I was so messed up and full of problems and shame and guilt and anger and resentment and all these 
nasty emotions that um i um oh god i was gonna say i wasn't able to um move on can't remember um yeah back to allegrify we are taking a technical break <laughs> No, uh, yeah, let's talk about Allegra Fire because that's maybe a little bit. Let's let, let let's keep it. Uh, uh, have a little bit of a light bit so you know, the listeners can breathe again. Uh, now, then we'll go really dark after. No, um, the second Allegra Fire basically is just I took a, I needed a name for a project, so I used the name of the first one and the logo of the first one. So that's uh, why they had the same name. I was like, I already bought the website, so now I have to do something with it. And this really came from like an idea of like just having originally listing or just a page that showed all the comedy shows because we didn't have that. And I always felt left out because I never knew when a comedy show was on and it drove me crazy. I would always read about them on Instagram two days after. So I started with this very early on, I think like years ago, um, trying to make a page. I just had like shows and like just try to get the information from the shows and I think at first I did it manually just went to like pages on Facebook like try to get this, this in and like try to get listed up and that was like first it was named expat Barcelona I think it was named Evan Barcelona at some point English comedy in Barcelona so I, I went through like very different iterations of it and I noticed that like people wanted or at least a certain set of people wanted this like people who watched the shows not the comedians themselves they didn't care about it at all but like people who wanted to watch the shows, um, they saw interest and like I got like some reach with that. Like I think I had like uh, hundred viewers and two hundred viewers on English comedy in Barcelona. Uh, and then I was like, yeah, okay, um, I want to go further with this. And now I want to create like uh, a platform out of this. And then I started with Legify, uh, trying to like make this further uh, take this further and like also have like profiles for comedians on there profiles for a bar on a uh, comedy venue on there and like what is what, what can i further do with this and actually uh, i think it was like last at the end of last year that i already gave up on it because i didn't get, get like interest from anyone at the time um and then and in january of 2022 which is this year uh, matt came up to me then i asked me to build their website and i was like oh, okay i have all this garbage that i created before I can use that to create your website in and then I start to build like a whole platform around their website. Um, and I also heard like from a, a bartender here at the clubhouse who asked, can you create me a website? I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I had profiles for comedians. I can use that to create your website. And I started out with this whole thing like, yeah, here you have a comedy platform. You can create websites with this. Uh, it has all the shows on there. Uh, everything goes super automatically. I have uh, a web scraper here, everything AI, everything integrated. So you won't do, I have to do work because I know you won't, wouldn't do the work anyway. Uh, and that's also a little bit how I shot myself in the foot is by doing just way or trying to do way too many things. Like trying to give anyone who would have asked uh, for me to build something, anything, I would just add it. Like, hey, I want a blog. Okay, I'm going to have a blog feature. Hey, I want to have a podcast. I have a podcast feature. Hey, I want to have this feature. And eventually I started like just rebuilding the entire internet almost, which mm. I shouldn't be doing. I should have done just for something for, I don't know, shows. I had a ticketing system because I had to monetize it somehow. 
should have just charged the bar for their website maybe that I built for them. Like I, I saw it way too big, tried to do way too many things, just never said no to anyone. That was also one of the mistakes. Um yeah, that's how I like I started this as a business because then I had a ticketing system and then I started selling the tickets here for the Comet Clubhouse. Um but it just yeah, it wasn't sustainable. The amount of effort that went into this to supporting people, building features for them. They wanted to have more things on their websites. People wanted to have things on their profile website. And there were like generally things I had to build myself for the platform that I didn't do because I didn't have time for them. Um, so that was just way too much. And then I decided to like uh, take a step back from that. And uh, I'm still in that phase. Like I said, like uh, some time ago, I'm going to shut it down. I wasn't able to uh, because I started a business in the US. Mm. And I had to deal with U.S. bureaucracy and Spanish bureaucracy combined. I that one I already stopped operating. Um, I did other things, uh, set up uh, something in Spain so I could operate here. I still have that. I still use that. Um, but the clubhouse website, they mo I asked them to move to something else because it took just too much effort for me to keep supporting it, especially now that I need to get another job. Uh, starting my new job on Monday. Uh, oh, tomorrow yeah um so yeah that's it like it's like i said i will shut everything down i didn't shut everything down but i am it's way really like in an idle mode and i really need to think through what i'm uh, gonna do with it next because i would love to keep some things like i have an app the live comedy app by the way like go mm -hmm. to live comedy app to install and see all the all comedy shows around you uh well mm -hmm. that app i still have it and i want to keep that one um because i think i like it I use it myself all the time, and I have seen some people installing it and using it as well. I'm not making money out of this, but I think like it's a nice thing, and I shouldn't like uh, to completely destroy it. The problem is this relies on services that I have running online that like are part of like the whole Electrify architecture that that I can't just take out. So I'm like, oh, look at this. Somewhere in December, probably somewhere next year, if I can like just uh, make live comedy. Uh, a standalone thing and like completely let it, let it run on its own maybe they take a thing back so that i can get commission but these are like things that i'm just looking into like in the future if i can begin to do right now i'm like somewhere in a uh in a hibernate mode with the whole project because i need to figure out what i'm going to do with it that's it yeah it seemed like it seemed like um you were trying to launch a lot of different things at the same time like it was so it was a great idea and I had so many cool different things. And even, you know, I signed up, uh, made my profile on it. And it was it was cool. It looked so smart. But I suppose for one person to try and be setting up in Spain and the US and running the whole thing is, yeah. It's a, it's a nightmare. You have to realize that these things, like, it's better that not bought by anyone. Unless there are thousands of people working there. And that is, uh, at the end of the day, just, people call it just a website where people have like text that is 140 characters long, that's it, right? I mean, there's tons of other features that people don't see, but that's the, ba the basic of their system. And there are thousands of people working there to maintain that, to support people and things like that. I had this platform where I'm almost trying to provide more functionality that Twitter has, and I'm doing it all on my own, and that's literally impossible. So you have to cut, you have to cut on quality, on the scale you can do it in, on the amount of functionality you want to do. Uh, yeah, and it's like I should have said no to people more and really like 
set a scope for myself this is where i want to go this is what i want to do uh, instead of like just trying to do uh, everything yeah yeah i read some sort of i read a few different um business books and entrepreneur books and all these different things but most of them say relatively similar things but the one thing that i always remembered because it was i was the same as you with especially with this website trying to just put everything on it at the same time and it's just not possible and everyone everyone was telling me connor take it slow just do one thing at a time get that thing running then add something else and i was like no no i can do everything at the same time and then lo and behold you can't but the the concept that it's called is mvp the not not most valued player but minimum viable yeah and it's that then when i read about that that was kind of one of those penny drop moments i was like yeah I mean, that is definitely the sensible way to do it. Just create a business or an app with that costs as little as possible to run and is as like, uh, simple, but still generates money and then add stuff on top of it. And then when I, when I realized that, I was like, okay, now I need to totally rechange my whole perspective on how to build and grow things. Yeah. And just chip away at things bit by bit. Um, so what would you have done differently if you did Allegrify again? Uh, well, it's like almost the same as asking what are you going to do next. True. Uh, first of all, I made a mistake. MVP stands for minimal viable, viable product. product. Yeah, no, valuable. Anyway, um, yeah, well, like you say, you should focus on less. And I think, yes, but then what I have the problem that I can't do... Uh, uh, what I used to have was less, like a page with only uh, events, which was already complicated to create because I had a scraper and stuff. But that would be less, right? That would be one thing. The problem is with that one thing, I'm not making money and not providing enough value to keep in, to people interested. Uh, I would, If I would do that, I would basically need to add ads, which I don't like, and they wouldn't make a lot of money. Um, but I wouldn't also wouldn't lose a lot of money, so that... That's basically where I am now, right? I still have the live comedy app running, and people can like still see shows that are there. And that's it, and and I basically redirects them to Eventbrite and wherever where they they buy their tickets. Can you not set up um, like commission partnerships for sending traffic those ways? I, I wish I could, but then uh, Eventbrite is quite big, and they haven't uh, replied to any of my emails yet. Oh right. <laughs> um. It's also, I guess, it's multiple different platforms, etc. Uh, I think that would be a great idea, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. Also, Eventbrite basically does the same, right? They have an app, and in this app, you can't see what's around, but it's not specific for comedy, but you can add a filter for, let's say, uh, comedy. So for their events, they already have these type of uh, integrate uh, functionality. Other platforms don't really have that, or doesn't, don't do it that well. Yeah, true. Um, so, yeah, I still have the software for a custom ticketing system, but the, the, the headaches that that brings along and the support and everything is, is a nightmare because obviously things don't work perfectly and people want to cancel their event or they bought an event tickets by accident or they messed up or like the people who created the show messed up or my software did something wrong or... There's just so many things that any type of logistics, there's always like 
a million things that can go wrong and now you almost understand why event bright takes such a high commission <laughs> it's to cover up they do marketing they do support they do so many things and um like i can bring that back maybe but um, i will have to heavily increase my commission as well which i've already done now uh, a bit um yeah that that's a bit the thing but it is a good way to get uh, money and that's a bit the, the, the dilemma that i'm with because that what i've seen here when i run their website and sold and tickets were sold through my platform i saw that a lot of tickets were sold and a lot of things did go well as well i think i can i'm not sure if i can say how much they sold in a, in a legify tickets but it was a lot and if i would have gotten let's say the same or even slightly less of commission that eventbrite now now takes from their tickets if i would have gotten that i would definitely be able to cover all my costs and maybe make some profit um but yeah then again the amount of time support and effort that goes in into like just running that i was working full-time on that <laughs> back then uh, i wouldn't be able to pay myself yeah, so, i suppose the scene in barcelona is not quite big enough really is it because right. really to be turning a good profit you'd need to be having five six seven eight large comedy clubhouses really wouldn't you yeah and another problem that they that i had here is that they only did that because i i, I provided like software for their website which that's already off the table i don't want to do that anymore because on the website there's like so many things they want to have a new sleeper feature they want to have this feature they want to have that feature they want to like consistently let me ask me for support with their website and want to have things differently i tried to sell that to all their bars but that's just like that's off the table i can't do that but if I would get, let's say, all comedy venues in Europe uh, or all comedy shows in English in Europe or whatever and use my app, um, st <laughs> people still want to do that even if I don't give them a free website, then I could make this in a, into a profitable thing. Um, but yeah, like why would they use my thing if Eventbrite has better marketing than I currently do? I don't understand uh, that argument. That's what I say. I need to figure things out. It's like right now I still have the live comedy app, but it's like events don't go through my system. Our ticketing doesn't go through my system. Right. So a few loose ends to tie up. So I saw your show recently. What's the name of it? I'm not okay. Uh, my show is Act Normal, by Act the way, Normal, on Friday uh, in uh, no, in Poblano, uh, in Imperfecto of Poblano. There I will do it again this Friday at 8 p.m. When will the show be? <laughs> oh no this, this won't be going this will probably be going out in like a month or so oh, um but where you film it don't you i don't think i will film it again this time i already filmed it last time but where can people can people find the whole stream for that not yet at least not um yeah well okay. put it somewhere so that then we can plug it yeah, well, maybe. Put it somewhere in the next month or two, and then we can plug it when I release this. Maybe. Let's see. The first one wasn't good enough to, for, like, this wider uh, wide public. I think this one is hopefully going to be slightly better, but it's still, like, yeah. It's not It's not a Netflix uh, special standard, so well, I'm not sure. The thing is that I think it was very it was very different to anything I've ever seen before, and that's a good thing. Um, I was really impressed with it. If I would have jumped around naked, uh, that would have also been very different. To anything. No, but what I mean, what I mean by that is that it wasn't an hour of, it wasn't a one-hour stand-up set. You know, there was stand-up mixed with storytelling, mixed with some more deeper, dark material. So it was more of an emotional roller coaster. 
um, which is what makes it different because you don't get that darkness in a stand-up set. So you like, I don't. Would you class it as a stand-up? Like, what what would you class it as? And the thing is, I had a little bit of well, I actually should ask you if, <laughs> like, when I did it the first time here, um, I had some problems with it because like a lot of things that I hear from other comedians or people in the scene is usually. Uh, it's not stand up, me, 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 me. Uh, uh, you can't call it stand up, you either have punchline. Uh, and then I got like really cautious in like calling it a comedy show or a stand up sh- comedy show. So I started calling it mixed show, theatrical show with mixture of storytelling, theater, poetry, drama, comedy, something like that. And after doing it now for an hour and recording it, I changed my mind because saying that doesn't sell very well and really makes like people think that you're not confident about what you're doing mm. because you have to say it in one word. You, you can't like give an explanation. You have to give it a name. Uh, so now I'm going back for a comedy show. Um, you just call it a comedy show, not even stand-up comedy show. It's a comedy show because I think out of the, the one hour that it took at 40 minutes uh, in the recording, I hear people laughing, so that makes it a comedy show. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there are darker bits in there, and they are a bit long, and I am actually looking into, like, maybe shortening that a bit. Uh, but if I look at, like, comedy shows in Belgium, or the ones that I'm familiar with that are obviously in Dutch, that no one else has ever seen, that's how I know things, kind of, at least. The comedy shows that I like that I've seen is usually it's like there are jokes in there and it's funny but they are also making a point and they're also saying their thoughts and they're telling us uh, there's one comedian in Belgium that makes like a show where he criticizes television uh, and films in Belgium and criticizes it for two hours on stage and I remember he had like a set where he spoke for 15 minutes about something that irritated him like a guy that irritated him on television and then went like in my childhood, I was also raised poor, and this would have disturbed me. And then you get like that, it gets like super personal, and then they tell us a personal story. So these are things that these are the things that I like. Um, also, if you look at Bo Burnham's shows on Netflix, especially the last one, which is categorized as comedy, uh, if you've seen it, Insight, a lot of people say uh, it's not comedy because it gets very dark and very depressing at the end. Um, but yeah, it's just, I think it's just another form of comedy. And it's like, in, I think on one side of the spectrum, you have uh, Jimmy Carr, who will just do punchline after punchline after punchline after punchline. And the show is not about nothing really and everything at once. And then on the other side, you really have like comedy shows where there's like a whole theme and the whole show is a story. And then there's personal stuff in there or it gets political or things like that. Uh, my show is more like that, but I'm still I still have working on it. It was uh, first try, but, but that's basically where I'm going. So yeah, thought provoking. That's what I would say. It is thought provoking because thought-provoking. yeah, it has it has a strong message, and I think that I think that if you've got a microphone and a voice and you're on stage, being able to put forward a message and get people to think is such an amazing uh, ability. You know, it's, it's, it's like a, it's a privilege to be able to put forward these opinions. And I mean, in your in your case, what you're putting forwards 
is something that I suppose isn't discussed and most people are probably pretty ignorant to. Um, and well, I mean, well, that... For the people uh, listening, because by the time that this podcast goes live, they, everybody has seen my show and I'm world famous. <laughs> um, now, what I'm discussing there, and it's fine, you can say the word, I am discussing some things around autism and I am discussing, well, actually multiple things, right? There's like the whole thing that I'm struggling with is that I have a diagnosis of autism and don't really have autism. I, I kind of explain that in my show. Uh, as well as, yeah, there's like some personal things like, um, I mean, like my, 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 my childhood traumas are a little bit touched in, in these things as well. And the point I feel like, or at least one of the things that I make, I feel like that's one of the uh, things that I want to work on my show is like making one point instead of multiple. But one of the things that actually came up there is like, I feel that people who are disabled, that we really don't treat them well. And most people will disagree with that and they'd be like, no, no, but if I see like someone in a wheelchair or a blind person or uh, anywhere, I will immediately start helping them and like carrying them around. And but that's kind of exactly what I mean is that like there's all the, all these types of new disabilities, right? We have ADHD, we have dyslexia, we have ADD and whatever uh, abbreviations they will come up with in the next uh, few years. It's like we call them disabled, but if you call someone disabled, I feel like they should actually be disabled from doing something. And at my place at work, I work with a lot of, or have worked with a lot of people who have either their dyslexia or have ADD or have HDHD or have autism. And they literally do their job. They pay taxes. They have children. They, uh, some of them go to clubs, uh, go to communities, provide care to, to other people. Then my thing is really like, well, how are they, what are they disabled? We call them disabled. What are they disabled from? What is the thing that they cannot do that another person can do? And that's a bit, I feel like it's almost a form of discrimination that exists that like we start categorizing these people still as like, ooh, the weird ones and the ones with a disability. And if you like apply for a job, there's like a whole form, like, do you have any of these disabilities that you have to fill in and stuff like that? While at the same time, you never notice anything. It's like, it's like really a minor inconvenience to many people. Um, if it, yeah, if I go up to people and say that I have autism, like you see, like all bells ringing in their in their head, uh, and they think of all kinds of things that would apply to me, and that I play with trains or whatever or stuff like that. Well, first of all, I don't think I do have autism. I just have a diagnosis. But secondly, it's like. I don't know, like, it's like, if you say I have a disability, from the moment you say I have a disability, people start seeing you as a disabled person. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And that's then what they knew. And then disabled means, like, um, that you're worth less somehow. Because that's how, that's how I have seen disabled people my entire life. It's like, if someone says this person is disabled, I'm like, okay, disabled means less, right? The other person is a normal person, the disabled person is the abnormal person. So it's okay to, um, or like we should give them extra care. That's one of the things that comes out of it. 
but it's also like, yeah, fuck, I don't want to date one of those because those are the abnormal ones. Um, and I've looked this up right before my show, and there is actually uh, a community in the US right now that is really standing up for uh, people with autism for discrimination that is being used against them. And there is even like uh, groups of people with autism that try to be part of uh, the LGBTQ community. So they're really throwing everyone in there right now. I thought it was just like heteros and, uh, or homosexuals and uh, bisexuals. But this is like, you recognize a lot of things, right? Like homosexuals in the 90s in Belgium uh, would get discriminated just for the way they are. Because you don't choose which sexuality you have. You can't, people would pretend like they're not gay, but they were gay. You know, you can't fix that. That's just how, how you are. And there are... Uh, similarities in the way I think people with autism or ADHD or whatever uh, get treated because they're also like different and people don't like uh, how they are and their parents might not accept them that they are like that or um, stuff like that or they're valued less or some people don't want to be around you because you are that way uh, so I, actually when I read that at first I thought that's crazy but in a matter of fact it's not that crazy you go through the same problems so what do you think led to your diagnosis and and how old were you and were you aware of what was going on at the time when they were kind of uh like assessing you so, so i was three and no i had no idea what was going on oh, because right. i was three <laughs> no but that's like the whole thing right um when i was three years old i was young uh <laughs> i didn't know what was going on in the world and also i think it's very hard to make a diagnosis for autism if someone is three years old yeah, it's pretty bizarre, to be honest. And the diagnosis, uh, this has never, after that, never been, uh, three years, might also be five years. I, I'm just throwing, uh, but this has never been redone as far as I knew. Like when I went to primary education or uh, high school or uh, university or whatever, for as far as I know, this test has never been redone. This is like still the same diagnosis that was taken when I was three, five, whatever years old before I, before I can remember it. I, I, by the things I remember in my life, I've never ha had taken this test. So it's like from before I remember it. Um, and one of the things that I did find, uh, well, I actually didn't find the original test ever. But one of the things that they did find was a document from court. I found it somewhere in papers years ago when I was living back home. And there, the court document said that there was a, uh, I don't know what this is called in English, but basically my mom was going against a court decision. And the court decision, the pre prior court decision was, your son is not handicapped for over uh, 50%. So this was, before that, I was recognized as someone with over 66% handicap. Because that means that you can't do anything and that you need like support from the government and stuff like that. Right. And won't be able to work. That's like basically like a, a legal rule, right? It's not like the 66% means anything except for it's a legal rule that basically says now you're unqualified from work, etc. So the court said that when I was very, 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 very young, two years later, the court and courts or some doctors decided that that was not the case. And then my mom fought that in court, which kind of implies that she wanted me to be handicapped. Um, and that's a bit the thing, like, there's been one diagnosis done once, and I already know that it's a bit shady by the whole court thing, and that's it. 
And that's like a whole thing of like, I have autism, that's like what it's based on. That's it. There is... Uh, but when you go to people and you say, uh, or ask them, from my childhood, let's say, I would have shown weird behavior. But weird behavior is not the same as autistic behavior. Like, you can be weird and not autistic um, in various ways. So I have definitely done things during my childhood with primary education, whatever, that were different from other uh, kids there. Like what? I don't know. Not standing with friends and running around the playground. Um, well, no, I mean, it's like I have dealt with anxiety and things like that. And I have been bullied my whole life. And uh, a desperate seek for attention was always there. You know that I mentioned that in my show. And these are like things I, I definitely coped with these things. So I had definitely had social problems, to put it like that. Um, so I understand that then people say, there are social problems. There's a diagnosis of autism. Perfectly matches everything, right? Mm -hmm. And that solves everything. Um, now, I don't think that's true. <laughs> that's, yeah, it's, it's complicated. It's like, I feel people use this whole thing of like, you have a diagnosis of autism and that um, that's answers all your questions, right? It's like, hey, I have problems getting into a relationship. Ah, oh, you have autism. That's why you don't have a relationship. Ah, oh, I'm depressed. Ah, oh, you have autism. That's why you're depressed. Oh, uh, I, I was fired from my job. Ah, oh, you have autism. That's why you couldn't do your job and you're fired from it. But life doesn't have easy answers like that. You know, there are other explanations why I was fired. There were other explanations why I'm not doing well in dating, and usually they're different. They're, these are different types of situations with different and complicated answers and long stories behind them. It's not that easy. And also with, like, me having social problems in high school, there's, like, a whole story behind that. I had divorced parents. My mom was yelling at me. I've been abused as a child. I've been bullied. Like, all those things combined could have already cost more than enough of me acting in a weird or introvert or antisocial way. But once you use the word autism, that's the answer. We don't have to look at anything else anymore. And that sucks to me. That's why I hate using this word and hate being labeled as that. It's like, no, look for the actual answer and not start giving me a label and call it a solution. Yeah, because you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned in your in your show that you that's the, the point that you're making is that the label of autism can just be you you say it can be it was an excuse for your mum's shitty behavior but anyone's shitty yeah well in, in yeah in your show that's what that's what you said so i mean is that something that you like can you explain a bit about your relationship with your mum uh well right now none <laughs> that's a very simple explanation um well i i did write i think a year and a half ago a block where i finally came out came out sounds like i'm gay no but um came out and explained that i did go through emotional abuse i gave examples and mapped them to actual things i found in books and uh, online articles that explain uh, because it's hard to uh, accept that because you're always gonna no one ever tells you that and you're also not just going to realize that. You really like have to like say, like, 
okay, these are the facts. This is what happened. And then it takes some time, and then you finally accept that. Uh, so last year was, or a year and a half ago, I put this blog, and then I finally uh, started publicly saying that, that I went through emotional abuse, uh, and that I have been a victim of emotional abuse, and I think that's it. Uh, like, my mom was an alcoholic, uh, and I feel that there's a lot of misconceptions about that. It's like, I had problems at home, and then when I would tell people uh, my mom drinks, then she would, they would... It's like a little bit the same way with autism. It's like, oh, okay, she drinks. That's also the, yeah. the answer to everything. That, that, that explains everything. No, it doesn't explain everything. She was also abusive. She would yell at me. She would not understand me. She would neglect me. She would never listen to me. Um, she would just not care about me. She was so obsessed with her own problems and her own depression and her own everything. That she just didn't care and just would yell at me that I didn't tell her anything ever and always scream at me and never treat me well and never care. She was just not there for me. That's the main problem. It's like being raised by someone who isn't there. Uh, physically, she was there. There was food on the table. There were gifts for Christmas. So that also makes it difficult to explain to anyone what's going on as a child. Um, but... Yeah, there was abuse, and I think at the age of 21, I ran away, well, ran away. I already had a company car back then and a job, <laughs> so I just... Drove away. I drove away. Uh, she was on a holiday then, uh, uh, for a few days. So I literally, like, never said anything and just left in the morning, which was already very hard for me to do, because she had, like, administration power on my bank account... Uh, I needed to find an actual place to stay, and I didn't really know anyone. She had a what on your bank account? Well, admin, uh, administrative rights. Oh. So that was like the first thing I was scared about. If I like leave, she'll just shut shut down my money. Then I have to go back. Uh, so that was like in the week that she was on a holiday, which was like a crazy week. It's like I just went to the bank and like just lifted that. Uh, I found an apartment in the same week, started like putting boxes in my car, but like just a lot, a couple of them, so it, no one would notice, because my sister was still home at the time. Uh, then on like I think it was on a Saturday that I just packed everything else, and on a very early in the morning drove away and never went back. Uh, that was like eight nine years ago now. So you've not been back since. No. Have you spoken to her? And did she contact you? Yes. <laughs> and you ignored it? Uh, if she contacted me, it was usually in an abusive way because when I read this um, blog post about emotional abuse, she created a fake account and like commented on that. Um, basically saying what I said was a lie. Uh, so she basically was trying to point out that she was not, in fact, abusive by being abusive. Uh, <laughs> which is awesome. Which you have to see the irony. Uh, that, you know, I, I actually had a hard time with like trying to block them from everything because there are these things called Facebook and social media, and I am kind. I don't want to hide myself on the internet because I work in the internet industry. I also do comedy now, so I don't in one way don't want to hide me from the internet. But in the beginning, especially, this was a huge challenge because I still lived in Belgium, like eighty kilometers away or something, and like. This person knew this person, and this person knew my mom. And then I didn't have my mom on Facebook, but I still had, like, this other person on my Facebook. 
and things would still go through and she still would find ways to contact me she would still figure out where i live uh, stuff like that so i had a very hard time i actually had to change my phone number as well at some point i had to block i like when i left home or when i left the region of where i lived i basically didn't only block my mom but i blocked my entire family and i blocked like a lot of people i went to high school with uh, and a lot of people surrounded around her as well just to like form some form of safety that she couldn't get to me um and that didn't always help like my sister once showed up when i lived in ghent i received well this thing on my blog and she's still in various ways trying to contact me so you, you no longer speak with any of your family no and so what was your relationship like with your sister then is it just one sister you have i have an older sister well if she's still alive yes and so you didn't get on well with her either well it's complicated right um i didn't go get, get along well with her ever i think that's fair to say but no yeah it's it's hard because i've recognized that i've been abused by my mom but that would also mean if i have been abused by my mom that two other people my sister and my stepdad and maybe even my original dad would also have been abused by her um and that would make my sister a victim to a certain extent but that also makes that she's in a way messed up um and like if she does not recognize that whatever she has seen there or the way that she's raised that that's not acceptable uh behavior then that might not be a person i want to be around uh and i feel that my entire life or at least to, to the extent that i was there that my sister always believed my mom felt manipulated by my mom and also always repeated what my mom said and that to me is very dangerous because my mom is not sane and my mom in my head can at times really be dangerous that I was really scared of her and I'm still really scared of her like if she comes after me and tries to find me that's not gonna be to have a little chat and a coffee that could really like have implications to my own safety uh was she physically abusive my mom was sometimes physically abusive primarily to my sister she would throw away things uh it was physically it wasn't as bad as it was uh, from a, a mental standpoint but when when she got really really drunk she could like get angry and throw away things that's like the whole thing is that in my whole time that i lived at home no one ever went against her or didn't give her what she needed because she would yell and get angry and everybody was scared of her instead uh, including her own husband so my sister would drive to the night shop every night to get her more alcohol she didn't want to give my mom more alcohol because that would make her more drunk and even harder to deal with but she would do it every night so what does that tell her uh, what does that say she's fucking scared of her mm and i was also super scared of her and everybody would just do whatever she wants 
and with me leaving home and running away, I for once did something she didn't want. I didn't just do what she said for once. She didn't 100% control me this once. And that's the thing I'm scared of the most is that all this time we've always done exactly what she wanted and we completely complied, uh, complied to her. And then she still got angry and still uh, yelled at us. Uh, and still we would be in pain at some times. And now that, that the tables are turned and I, that I run away and started my own life and actually stopped caring about her at all, I don't think she will be super satisfied with that. So we, we have a person who is emotionally unstable, uh, emotionally unstable, uh, has severe mental health issues, has already uh, shown some forms of aggression in the past, has done really horrible things in the past, who is probably angry at me. That's not a very satisfying feeling. Mm, okay, I, I, that, yeah, that doesn't sound like a very nice situation. Um, what would it take for reconciliation to happen? That's not gonna happen. <laughs> that's not gonna, and that's also like a thing that why I'm not not around my family, or one of the reasons I'm not around my family. Like the first reason I'm not uh, not not uh, having contact with my family is if I have contact with my family sooner sooner or later I have contact with my mom, and I do not want to have contact with my mom, so I blocks all of them out of my life as well at at some point. No, at the same same day at actually. But. My family wanted to be English words. Uh, wanted us to get better back again and be the happy family, and I think that's what they always wanted. And especially, I run away from home once as a teenager and went to my aunt, and they just sent me back home. So this is what they want. They want us to just go back home for me, uh, or they always wanted back in the day at least because yeah, I've been away for ten years. Um, that's that's the solution that they want. But that's a solution that cannot be achieved. You can't do that. That's not a solution. It's just like that's me I, again complying with her and mis letting myself be abused by, again by her. So I don't really feel like being abused. Oh, weird that myself. I don't want to do that. And then people can say like, yeah, but she can change. No, she cannot change. She had 20 years to change and she didn't change. If someone only gets worse for 20 years, I, you cannot expect them to get better in the next 5, 10, 20, 20 more years. No, she's not going to change. And by the reaction I got on my blog post recently, seems like she's still uh, angry at me and still abusive to me. So no, she didn't change and she will not change. And so you can't fix that. So there is not going to be any moment in time where I'm happily going to come together with my mom. She's never going to uh, recognize that she, may, that, that she did any wrongdoing. To her, she's the victim. She's the victim. Everybody did things wrong to her. Uh, she's depressed, so like the whole world is turned against her. Everyone is turned against her. I'm now turned against her. Well, probably, I guess I am. Hmm. But that's it. And she lives in this reality of everybody being against her, and it's always everybody else's fault. And that's it. And that is not going to be fixed. And what if she stopped drinking? Then she would still... <laughs> I didn't mention the word alcohol in the last five minutes that I was talking. It's still the same, same thing. She'll still think the same way about the world. She'll still think the same way about me. She will still not never 
recognize any wrongdoing. Mm, I think the getting clean stops that. I think the getting, when you get clean, you're forced to face up to reality. Being drunk allows you to avoid reality totally. And being drunk turns you into total victim. All the things you're describing is just typical addict behavior. Is it? A hundred percent. Because there were times where she didn't drink. And still abused. For long periods. I don't remember everything super well, but yeah, I'm sure that there were periods where she wasn't drunk. Yeah, because usually, I mean, if you've been drinking for like 10, 20, 30 years, to then undo all of that takes years of being sober and therapy and rehab and all these things so but also the other thing is imagine if she miraculously would get better which i already pointed out won't happen do i all of a sudden have to forgive her for all the shit she put me through all the traumas i'm dealing with all the therapy i'm currently paying for i don't feel like doing that to be honest maybe not now and maybe never, but I suppose only time will tell for that. I suppose that I'm just a, I'm just a hopeful optimist, which is annoying to hear, I suppose, for people. But for, um, for me, this doesn't help me in any way. And as I, I already pointed out earlier, it's like I put my own mental health first, and like getting reconciliation with my mom will only make my mental health worse. So I don't want to do that. I do want to find other people, and I do want to find uh, a girlfriend that I love, and like be together with her, and start my own little family with a girlfriend and a cat, because I don't want children. But I want all those things, and I think those will help me to get further in life. But like going back in the past and like picking this back up is not going to help me. It's only going to uh, make things worse. I. Really, it's like, I feel people don't understand this because they haven't been in that situation. And it's like, this person is not my mom. This person is someone who yelled at me for years, who neglected me for years, didn't care about me for years. Um, but like, when other people like ha have a fight with their mother or their mom, it's like, they have a fight, but yeah, they know that this person cares about them that this person has always been there for them and stuff like that i don't have that that layer is not there for me this person did not care about me this person cared about herself i cannot think of any moment in time where she cared about me she put food on the table because she had to put food on the table she gave me christmas gifts because she had to give me a christmas gift because those were obligations that she had to fulfill but she didn't care about me she didn't love me and that's like a thing like and if that's the case, if that has been the case your entire life, that person is not, in many ways, not your mom. Like, biologically she is, but she's not my mom. She hasn't been a mother figure. So it's not like, I need to get back and, like, get this person back. That person has never been there. I just need to find a replacement for that person. And it's very hard to find that replacement because other people did have that figure. I did not have that figure. Uh, and I'm still trying to find a replacement. But, no, you're too optimistic and very utopic and believing like yeah everybody's gonna be happy and like dancing around the Christmas I don't think that I don't I don't think that I don't put happiness into it I believe that some people can change some people will never change 
obviously you know your mum better. Um, I would say that if she stopped drinking, the chances of all of this stuff healing would be way higher because she would have to deal with her stuff. She would re realise her wrongdoings. She would then be genuinely apologetic and be able to express that to you. And it would all just heal. That's that's what could... I, I'm not saying that will happen, but that is one possibility. And you mentioned that it won't have any impact on your life if that were to happen. Um, and there's there's some people who can never have a proper relationship with their family members because for whatever reason but it's important for people to make peace with that because you've used the word replacement twice and you can't replace your mum and if you try and replace your mum with a girl that will go badly um and it's you know i had for you know i left when i was about 18 and then I had a terrible relationship with my mum in particular as a teenager, mainly through my fault because I was drinking loads, taking loads of drugs and just being a dick, like impossible to talk to, impossible to reason with. And I just did whatever I want and I used to just disappear and do anything I wanted. But and you, not... you were a child, right? Well, I was a teenager, but then that carried on. And then it was like, it was difficult for... I, I didn't have, when I was like one to 10, I was really close with my mum. And then when I was like 11 to 18, I was way closer with my dad because he took me to rugby and he liked drinking. So like, then we just did stuff together and doing that type of thing. But it meant that then I left away and I had all this resentment against my family and I felt that they didn't understand me. Um, and, you know, they were not particularly good at communicating but I was the one that was putting forward a lot of the problems um, and just bringing stuff up. I was kind of trying to heal things and bringing things up, which caused a lot of problems. And it was hell for a long time. But then it got really better. And now I love my family and I love seeing them. And I'm like, that's why I'm optimistic. But I also am realistic. And I know that you can't wait around for someone to change. Because that might never happen. But I, I, I'm not waiting. For no, I know you're not. That's what I'm saying. I know you're not. I know you're not. Um, but yeah, that's the that's the point that I'm making. It's like, I suppose it's easy for me to say that it's nice to have a bit of optimism because everybody has to deal with things in their own way and categorize and and separate themselves emotionally. But there's, I I think that without having like family is the primary um it's like your primary connection so if you have damage in your family or no connection even if that connection is bad it'll then affect the rest of your life and healing that in whatever way possible i think is so important and if you can't heal it then just making peace and making peace sometimes does involve which is what you're doing at the moment, digging up the past and... Well, that's why, why I go to therapy, right? Yeah, um, and doing the show. You know, that that is another form of yeah, therapy and catharsis. What, that's what I mean with a replacement, and I'm like not saying that someone else should be my mom, but <laughs> the thing is, like, I need some other people in my life that care about me. Yeah. And that's what I'm working on, and I feel like there's things in the way I 
um, I am around people and uh, I communicate with people that uh, are impacted by the way I've been traumatized. And these are things that I'm working on right now. Um, but the thing is, like, my family is dead to me. Like, that's a topic that I'm not going back into. This is a topic I talk about in my show mm. when I talk about the past. But that's the past. That's gone. That's over. There is no solution. Like, if there was a solution to make my mom better, I would have done it in the 20 years that I were there. Definitely. I wouldn't have... I would have loved to have another situation than the one I was in. Because after that, my life was shit. I had to deal with uh, financial problems. Never had anyone to support me for years. Like, I would have taken any alternative but that. But I realized that this was something that couldn't be resolved. There are situations in life and luckily for me there are not a lot of them but sometimes there are situations and problems in life that you can't solve and if you can't solve them you need to find a way to live around them mm-hmm. and that's what i did and i just yeah i did one of the bravest things I, i've probably done in my life and that's like leaving this whole situation and yeah blocking people from high school blocking people from my family never talking again to my family spending christmas on my own every year um these are things that are hard but they work for the better and I- i'm way happier now even though with all the problems that i still deal with today than i would have been if i still were in contact with them and yes yeah, is it ideal no but it's way better than what the alternative would be and that that's the whole thing it's like we gotta move on and deal with it yeah yeah must be very challenging um so before we end now if you could give yourself some words of wisdom age like i don't know 18 to 21 or whatever time you think would be the best time what would you tell yourself Mm, i'm thinking look uh i think i have had this question by my therapist actually so you you are trying to be a therapist now but like the the question was more like i've been bullied and i've went through hell as as a child right or i had very bad situations there and if there's one thing i would say to that kid back then uh i honestly wouldn't know what because whatever situation i was in back then seemed endless and seemed without any solution or anything would uh, come out of it so you could then like go very typical with the words it will get better or things like that but the the thing is if i would go to my 12 year self i would be like yeah things will get better 10 years from now (laughs) So, I don't know, and this is like something I struggle with, because there are, people always want to come up with like these simple things and this advice, like, this will get better, and yeah, stay true to yourself, and be yourself, but sometimes life just sucks for a while, and that's it, and sometimes there is no solution, but yeah, you gotta move on, and keep trying, I guess, that's it, like, I don't know, like, 
there are problems that I had back then when I was 12 that I now as an adult still wouldn't be able to solve. So, yeah, uh, keep trying. Life gets better. Uh, that's my advice. <laughs> life gets better in 10 years. Keep life, trying. Life gets better maybe one day. Uh, keep trying. I mean, you'll only know if you try. That's what I'm saying. Keep trying. That's uh, try to keep the message positive. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Jacob. I hope you've enjoyed the experience. You will be in two weeks or so receiving a free Quest for Wisdom t-shirt, which will be not that similar to this, but different, which will be extremely exciting for you just in time for Christmas. Um, cool. So you can wear that on Christmas Day. Yeah, well, um, while I eat pizza and play on my PlayStation. Yeah, so. while you eat pizza and play on the PlayStation. Um, but how can people find you to look at your stuff? Social medias or whatever? Anything you want to plug? Anywhere. Uh, Dejacob.com, uh, which is like D-E-Jacob.com. Jacob with a K. Yeah, that's... D-E-J-A-K-O-B. Basically anywhere, right? I am on Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, anywhere. Or just, just come, obviously, to the Comedy Clubhouse in Barcelona, where we're recording this, where there's shows every night. Or they come to my show, uh, by the time where this is broadcasted, they go back in time three weeks, and then they can watch my show on Impact. Well, no, because we'll have a live stream, we'll have a stream of it somewhere by then. Yeah. So we can, we can plug people straight there. Okay. Anyway, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You're Ciao. welcome. Thank you for listening to the Quest for Wisdom podcast with your host, Connor Monaghan. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to support the show, then please like it, subscribe, and leave a review on whichever platform you are using. This small act is a massive help and is hugely appreciated. You can find more information about all of our guests on thequestforwisdom.com and follow us at The Quest for Wisdom on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter for exciting updates. We also have a Patreon account for anyone who would like to contribute towards the running of the show. Finally, I would like to thank the Comedy Clubhouse in Barcelona for allowing us to record here and for their ongoing support. If you are ever in Barcelona, make sure to check it out for daily shows of comedy and performance art in English. Farewell for now. Thank you.